Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations about building and marketing products and building the businesses behind them. I'll be digging deep into best practices, war stories, and hot takes to try and inspire you to build the right things, build them right, and get them to market effectively. If that's right up your alley, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app or follow the podcast on your favourite social media platform and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we consider the unstoppable march of the machines and talk to someone who's looking to automate, well, just about everything. We talk about some of the pitfalls of manual processes in scaling companies and how automation can help you out, the types of tasks that can and can't be automated, some of the techniques you might want to use, and some of the ones that might just be a bit too much. We also dig deep into the dark underbelly of an attempt to game the system at high school, the likes of which would make Matthew Broderick from War Games blush, find out what happened next, and if it was all worth it. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Daniel Cooper. Daniel is a former PlayStation game developer turned city broker, consultant and multiple startup founder who describes himself as a young grumpy old man. So I'm assuming we're going to get on famously. Daniel is passionate about all things automation and on a mission to automate a million companies with business process automation firm Lollico, where he's the founder and managing director and aiming to remove manual effort and free people up from wasteful business processes and repetitive mundane tasks. I'm assuming that means he's going to be able to help me significantly with sorting out my backlog. Hi Daniel, how are you tonight? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Jason. I really uh, appreciate your time. Thanks. No problem. It's good to have you here. Thanks. So first things first, you're the founder and managing director at Lollico. So for the record, what problem does that company specifically solve for me? So what we do is we solve automation and process issues for companies. So really, when we look at, when we look at a company, companies move really, really fast when they're growing. And often that means a whole We'll fix it later. Anyone listening to this will understand if they're in technology, the whole, ah, we'll get back to that. We'll fix it later. Don't worry about it. And then yep. two years down the line, we start giving it a name. We call it technical debt. <laughs> Companies have a lot of technical debt, and it's often just in the processes where stuff is not written down, or it, it, we just kind of did a temporary fix, and that would that, that'd be a kind of a that'll do attitude to it, which is completely understandable. What we do is we look to break processes down and try and optimize them as best we can for companies. And then we actually automate what will provide a, a decent ROI for the, for the company on the back of it. So it. You know, you can't automate some stuff. It's just not going to work out in a feasible way. Other stuff you can, you know, people start talking about machine learning, forget it, the, the ROI is not there. <laughs> but in a nutshell, that's what we do. Yeah, so you touched on machine learning there and that was actually one thing that popped into my mind because obviously these days when you're talking about large-scale automation, you're generally going to hear that phrase thrown in somewhere, probably with a blockchain or something at the same time. And it's like, you know, you just touched on it there that, that that's not always going to be the answer. But like, is that some of the answer that you give? Or are you mainly focusing on more traditional process optimization, you know, kind of making certain steps that are manual, slightly more efficient? The thing with machine learning, and we will perform machine learning tasks for clients if it's required. We've become real experts at saying, no, stop it to people. <laughs> you know, when people come to us and say, oh, could we just make some AI to do it? You could, definitely. Would you like to sacrifice 10 years worth of revenue in order to do something that's probably costing you 
50 or 100 grand a year that you'd like to solve. So for us, it is really what is the right tool for the job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And often the devil's in the detail with this type of stuff. I'll give you a prime example. We work with a company, a marketing firm, who produce written content. And when I say they're content writers, it's insane. They produce only 4 million words a month across 4,000 articles. And we discovered during one of our process workshops that they deliver all the work to their clients in Google Docs, which sounds about right. But then when we started looking deeply into the myriad of folders and file systems they had, it turned out it took them around 11 minutes to produce each folder structure and store everything away. When you're doing that 4,000 times a month, (laughs) <laughs> Those numbers start to clock up and you start saying to people, you do know that Google Drive has an API. Yeah. And it's that those types of areas that we look to solve and find where it will make an immediate difference to the company and people don't have to do the really boring stuff. <laughs> so does it tend to be then quite a lot of engagements like what you said where you'll go in, you'll find some obviously clunky stuff and fix that up? Or do you tend to go for kind of longer term engagements and sort of get rid of the easy stuff first and then try and then just continually make change after that? The funny thing is you don't know what you don't know. So (laughs) clients will often come to us and they'll say, I want to automate this. Okay, cool. That sounds like a good wish. You know, why is the question? Oh, because we don't like doing it. And we have to walk people through the, well, let's maybe look at the financials behind this and what it costs you to do it. But the key to what we do is, is that Often the people who come to us and say, we want to automate this one thing are people who are quite high up in the chain. So they'll be an MD, they might be COO, they might be CFO, CMO. It's going to be a C-suite level, really. But the reality of it is... bad, eh? Yeah. Those are the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. These are the minders. We call them minders. But really the people doing the job are the grinders. And it's the grinders who know the job inside out. And yeah. they are the ones who can provide us with the detail on what should or should not be automated. So the workshops that we do are really there to extract all of this information out of people's heads and spend typically what works out to across four days, a lot of, oh, and also, oh, I forgot to mention. And sometimes (laughs) we do it this way, a lot of that type of stuff. And that's where those processes will come forward. You're right. And it is about trying to work out, do you do the easy stuff first? You could do, but the likelihood sometimes that doesn't give you the proper ROI. You know, we, so we, yeah. we, we flip it and look to where is it going to make an immediate difference to the company and where is it going to make an immediate, immediate difference to the staff as well. So some of the process that you were just explaining there sounds a lot like what in product management terms would call product discovery, right? So kind of going yeah. in, asking loads of open-ended questions, five whys, 10 whys, how many whys you need, and really <laughs> yeah. trying to drill into their use cases and get into the detail. Yeah. So do you have like a lot of people in the company with product management experience or sort of user research experience or is that something that you've had to kind of build along the way so in consulting generally wherever you look at our firm or if you look at someone like accenture or cognizant the general path for someone to take to becoming a consultant you go from analyst all up to consultant and that path does take you through project management uh, and upper management as well for your consultancy so for us it's a really important part that everyone understands so yeah, you're right. There are, there are a lot of whys and there are a lot of different exercises that we're doing to pull all these bits out of people. Project management is a, is a massive part of what we do. And, and like most technology companies and like most marketing companies and whatever, whatever you're doing, really, it's digital. There's a huge amount of PMing involved at every stage, every stage. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. But are you primarily targeting really big 
companies with really big inefficient systems or you kind of do you have a kind of a smorgasbord of just every type of company and just anyone that has a problem i'll hold my hands up and say if anyone does come to us and they're a big company i'm likely going to say that we're too small for them not because we're too small but because i just don't want to do the work <laughs> and it's oh, now it's they're going to come back twice that's y- the problem yeah exactly so the, the reality is we like to work with founders the founders that we tend to work with they've got companies which are probably doing somewhere between two million pounds all the way up to an upper limit of maybe 15, 20 million absolute max. And the reason why I say that is because they've hit this weird growth point and there's a, a strange glass ceiling and they can't quite escape it. It's like trying to launch a rocket and gravity's putting you down. But the gravity in this aspect is we've got nothing written down. None of the yeah. processes are there. None of the SAPs are there. Everyone's doing everything by hand. And we, we can't hire people because we haven't got the time to train them. We're too busy doing the work. Those are the people we work with. So that's interesting because there's this, I mean, it's kind of a made up example, but I'm also aware of companies that this does actually explain, like where you've got, to your point, a startup that's becoming a scale up. They may well have done some kind of mixed model to kind of get to some form of product market fit with, I don't know, some form of manual work in the background to kind of just get stuff over the line with the idea that they're going to go and fix that later. Now in product management terms and sort of scale up SaaS terms, you you obviously want to get that effectively productized as soon as possible. So to take away those manual processes and get everything to be scalable so that your unit economics work out for you. Mm -hmm. So are you helping people on that journey specifically? Like, Do you think, for example, that when you go into a company and you find these things that you're helping them to become more of a proper SaaS product company? Or is it more of the kind of back office stuff around it or some of the supporting systems that you think you'd be concentrating on? The funny thing is, I think it depends on the company. Some companies, some are SaaS companies that will come to us and they will be getting us to help them build these things out for them. Others will be agencies. We have a lot of digital marketing agencies that work with us. I don't know how this has happened. I think we had one or two to begin with and then we slowly have more and more referrals. And now all we ever do is seem to just integrate SEO tools. And <laughs> but, That's the fun stuff. Yeah, but the reality of it is is that they everyone, every business has to have a process and has to have systems in place. And without them, it's really hard to scale it. But every company is completely unique. Whether or not, like I said, that's us trying to automate creation of folders and files within Google Drive or whether or not we're submitting tax returns to HMRC and company's house automatically via the most awful APIs you've ever seen. Oh, I'm well aware of the company's house <laughs> APIs. So we're doing a lot of a lot of stuff like that as well. So it, it really does vary. But the the general theme always is what next and what about this and how, where is your process? What happens if this person, I don't know, decides to move to Barbados for six months and not talk to you whilst they're there? <laughs> what do you do then? It's that type of stuff that worries us. It, all of us, in fact, right? In any business, that key man risk is terrifying. But it is interesting because project management has a bit of a bad name in product management circles, right? Because product is all about fast iterations and you know, MVPs and you want nice agile companies that are you know, just testing and learning and not having too much process on the top of things because you know, that slows them down. And you know, there's this old cliche about how process isn't going to fix bad culture or anything like that. I mean, it sounds like you're not on that side of the, of the equation because you're very passionate about getting these processes right but like do you think it's possible for there to be too much process that's actually going to start holding people back 
for sure. And one thing I always like to say to people is before you even, if you've got something new you're going to try and tackle, let's say you're launching a new service for the company, don't just immediately then say, oh, let's write, let's do a process flowchart and write an SOP <laughs> and get it so it's perfect. Because what you'll do is waste all your time because you'll launch it and you'll, oh, uh, that doesn't quite work. We need to change that. <laughs> but before you know it, it's changing something completely different. And it's the same with automation. I say to everyone, do not try and automate it unless you've done it manually yourself first and understand the pain. So processes and automation are exactly the same on that on that point. So no, I don't think you can process map and SOP absolutely everything. There are some things which are just creatively impossible to do. How are you going to process map the ideation in digital PR? Good luck. <laughs> now, I will say that I do share your passion for automation because I've worked in big companies in the past and, you know, seen some fairly horrific and inefficient processes myself, you know, people manually processing stuff for days on end from Excel sheets and put them into other Excel sheets. And then, you know, you just go in there, do a little bit of scripting or something and it's done. Mm. So I definitely get where you're coming from. But what was it that originally gave you the passion for this area at all? Like, so you've obviously got a, a real, you know, you've talked very passionately about it so far. What sparked that off for you? I think actually I'm just lazy is what it is. <laughs> That's so, the opposite of passion. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the, it's, it's a real, I suppose it's a dichotomy, right? So whilst I am live in this office that I'm sat in now pretty much, <laughs> I'm sure my wife would agree, that I'm lazy in as much as I hate doing repetitive stuff over and over again. I do it a lot and I've done a lot of previous business as well. We, I had a small business with a partner at one point. We had like an events company. It was great. It was just a lot of fun, to be honest with you, Jason. All we did really was just do digital marketing and get pissed. It was great. It was absolutely brilliant. And the, the greatest thing about it was that we clocked actually that he could run a lot of the businessy bits and I could just automate a lot of it. And we actually meant we'd rock into work maybe 11-ish, leave at about four, and, and then we'd run events. It was great. And it does come down to that laziness. So for me... That's really where it's come from. Just not wanting to do the same old thing again and again. Want to move on to something shinier, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. And it's always nice to have a new bit of silvery paper floating down the street that you can chase after. But like, has it been a general theme in your career then? I mean, you've talked about your startups, but like, you've obviously worked in, you know, you've been a broker, you've worked in gaming, you know, developing games and stuff like, has that been a general theme through your career that's always been there? Like this, this desire to get away from repetitive tasks. And have there been any of those particular parts of your career that were worst for that? Yeah, I think that when it comes to stock markets, you're, <laughs> they've been doing it for a long time, automation with quants and with all sorts yep. of very, very fancy code and so advanced, they're in competition to lay their own internet lines across the Atlantic in order to be that split second yep. faster. So Move closer to the stock exchange, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's presuming you can automate, you know, some kind of trading algorithm is is naive. So in that area, there's not a lot you can really do. And, and it's so much money there that it's sewn up. Other areas, of course, are, are much more open to automation, whether or not when you're working with computer games, you're working with software like 3 Studio Max and and Maya, they have room in them where you can add scripting and you can automate stuff quite nicely. In the same way you can do routine 
automations in Photoshop with batch files and stuff yeah. like that, which is which is fun, I suppose. <laughs> when it comes to more of the hardcore automation, though, I think that for me, really, that's, that's come in the businesses that I've owned myself, trying to understand how we can move forwards in those, whether or not they're startups, which are VC-backed, or whether they're, I don't know if you can call it a startup, it's not VC-backed, but just let's just call it a business, <laughs> or just company. a business, yeah, <laughs> an SME. Ah uh, no, well, no, to be fair, there's also the ongoing trend for sort of bootstrapped and angel invested stuff as well. So not quite VC because they like some people actually are very keen now to not be VC backed, and there's this yeah. whole movement around kind of taking alternative yeah. sources of funding so that you don't have to go mm-hmm. for some of those potentially destructive VC backed cliches like having to scale at all costs and you know try, trying mm-hmm. to get those returns for them. So yeah, it's an interesting movement that. Oh, I, I, I've, been, I've dealt with VCs before and they're good, they're good people <laughs> and it's a good model, but I can tell you not being VC back now means yeah. I have a lot more time. So are you self-funded or funded from your previous startups? No, or? We're, 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 completely, we're completely self-funded. It, it's, it's nice not to have VCs involved. Like I said, though, good people. <laughs> um, but it, I think the ra- raising money is a real roller coaster, actually, and it, it absorbs yeah. a huge amount of your time away from the business. And I question whether or not actually you could have probably broken even, even in SaaS, by just hustling a bit. <laughs> and at the same time, it, I think it's very, it's very, it's a very difficult line to tread being VC back because there's a lot of pressure on you to perform. Yeah, I think a lot of the time that anxiety is almost self-inflicted, oddly enough. <laughs> and this whole feeling of uh, every month you need to report and it better be a good report. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is a lot of pressure. So you know, uh, here at Lolly, my report goes between myself and management and and if it's a great month great and if it's not such a great month well still great it's <laughs> it's all right uh so there you go but i i kind of i've, I've really uh i think I've diverted from the main point we were talking about there uh which was automation and the kind of different places that i've experienced it in my career i think yeah. for me look it, it, it's just really been a, a way for me to shortcut stuff and yeah. just try and beat the competition is really what it what it was for me that it gives me that upper upper hand but you're a consultancy right so you're going in there and you're effectively building bespoke stuff based on the need of the people that you go in to see but i have to ask you right so regarding automation the kind of the archetypal automation you could consider would be like a product like a platform that would do this for someone and they could just sign up and do it themselves yeah so since you're living by the sword why aren't you dying by the sword so why aren't we producing a piece of software that yeah. would do this for them, as in well, like a, a SaaS? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there sure, are, work, right? there are yeah. workflow tools out there. There are data management tools out there. There are all mm. these different there are. Um, platforms like Zapier and stuff that you can start to use to pull stuff together and automate little bits. Like, Isn't that a game that sounds interesting for you to be in? That might be a good laugh, and it might be fun. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the thing about it is, is we are so busy with our current clients, and it sounds like a bit of a cop-out. I'll hold my hands out and say that. You know, <laughs> people are like, copping out. We are insanely busy with our own clients, and finding the time to do that would be very, very hard. It's something that we've toyed with. The, the difficulty that I find with that train of thought for me personally is that knowing my clients, I have a, I have a particular client who, who makes glasses. They're excellent. I'm sure they won't mind me plugging. They're called Opulize. You can look them up. There you and go. Amazing oh, glasses oh, oh. for really cheap. There you it's go. Right. That's, that's, I'll charge them £500 for the uh, advert afterwards. It'd be fun. I'll have to, have to sell about 100 pairs of glasses for that, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point of it is that I know the founder of that company. If I said to him, look, why don't you just 
sign up for Zapier or sign up for Trade.io or sign up for, I don't know, a, a Myriad, UiPath, or whatever. It could be all of these things, all of them and none of them. He would say to me, oh, I'm too busy for that. Can't you just sort it out for me? Right, yeah. Oh, I don't know any of this stuff. You just sort that out. I just know glasses. And for them, they don't want to have to have pieces of software they log into. They're all sick of lots of different siloed pieces of software. Yeah. Adding one more into the mix just complicates it even further. And at the end of the day, they don't want to have to learn another piece of software. They don't have to hire someone to do this. So a lot of our consultancy will come in and be talking to them about what is possible, where the ROI is, and which systems to be using and, and what we should or should not be building. If there's something silly that could be automated, sure, why not, <laughs> right? But typically, these are complex things. You know, when I'm tracking hundreds of thousands of pairs of glasses moving from China to the ports in the UK and over in, in New York, and we're trying to work out where the, the all different 1,700 SKUs might be in that, there is no way, <laughs> no way Zapier could help me with that. Like, <laughs> none. Maybe if, I don't know, we want to, every time there's a new customer in Shopify, it can add it to MailChimp and a spreadsheet. Cool, right? That works. Nice. Yeah. But for, for anything more complex, it just is going to struggle. And even if you do have a, uh, a low-code tool that can do that, it then means the founder's then got to learn that as well, which is right. the tricky part. But do you create some of the solutions that you do create in some of these tools, like, you know, for, as an example, something like Zapier, or is all of your stuff completely bespoke? So it does depend is the answer to that. If it's something really, really simple, like, I just wanted X to do X, then sure, just low or no-code it. If it's going to be something more complex and the way we have to try and as well appreciate the business is constantly shifting, then we're going to need to make something custom where the parameters of the automation can be changed by the client themselves. Because the things that we build must survive without us. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's the important one of the important points that we always go with. No, it makes sense. But I know you're also a massive advocate for remote working and distributed teams and yeah. also running what I've seen you refer to as remote control businesses. Yeah. What's a remote control business? For me, a remote control business is one that you can operate and get access to all the KPIs and all of the flow charts and all of the graphical interfaces you need from a beach. I want to be able to do it from anywhere. I have this thing <laughs> where just before we started the company, my mother-in-law said, oh, we should go on holiday the day after Boxing Day. It was, it was, that was the year, you know, you've taken turns. One year you go to your parents, yeah, the yeah, year yeah. you go to your wife's. And that was the year it was going to be my mum's. My mum was not impressed. But <laughs> look, <laughs> the point of it was went to Bermuda and I fell in love with the place. It's, so, it is, it's weird. It's like you're in some kind of Disneyland resort because there's no rubbish anywhere. It's incredibly clean. It's just a very, very nice place. Couldn't recommend it more. I thought, how do I move here and start a company from here? Well, instantly I realized looking at their laws, we're not allowed to do that. You can't have a company <laughs> there. You can't just move there and open up companies to do business with people there. So you'd have to have it in the UK. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just run something remote. Long story short, here we are. But I think that I was a big proponent for remote before COVID. So it wasn't really a big mind shift for me in COVID. But I think that potentially it's wrong, people's kind of thought process around it. Whilst we don't have an office, I think the future of work is a remote team that then has individual centers that aren't offices, but they're almost like experiential centers. That sounds so 
so nonsensey, I know. <laughs> but like, it basically, imagine a place, Jason, where you and I and our teams could come together and we could solve a problem together in a private place that we own as our office, inverted commas, but as a kitchen and a bar. There are no desks. It's just a big whiteboard. We can put ideas and we can just solve problems together because whilst remote works and if we add loads of tickets to Asana or Jira or whatever you're using and we're running you know, very organized scrum teams and everyone has everything just the right place, it can take the essence out of it slightly, especially when it comes to client relationships. So with clients especially, I feel it would be a good way to run things. And it's nice to have a base that where we don't just have to have biannual meetups with the company. But anyone who is in London can go to the London office, and anyone who's in yeah. Bangalore can go to the Bangalore office. And, you know, wherever they are, try and set this up. I think that's the future. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense, and it's obviously very topical at the moment. Obviously, because of the COVID situation and mm. everyone having spent all of that time working away, now there's kind of almost Empire Strikes Back type revenge of the big businesses trying to drag people back into the office against their will, which I think is yeah, best of luck with that. Well, yeah, but I do have this concern that whilst it's true that, for example, there's a lot of mobility and people can go and get other jobs in other places and mm. all these remote first companies are going to be, be able to get the cream of the crop, but there aren't enough companies for everyone to get that job. So no. there's going to be some companies which people have to work for because all the other jobs are gone. And I do have a slight worry that some people are going to end up being stuck in companies that try and pull that crap on them. But Hey. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that I'm sure there will be. I think as companies become more competitive, I think that though they will struggle more and more. The ones who aren't who aren't offering that, a- absolutely. I, I just work really is. We're all adults. That's the problem with companies. <laughs> tra- tra- traditionally, it's been we went from the Victorian era when we were working twelve, fourteen hour days and we paid so badly. We're sleeping on. You know, sleeping in the back alleys and in the, in a pub where you could get a shut eye for just five minutes. <laughs> to now where we're saying, okay, we have to work eight hours now. We're saying the government had to introduce laws to make sure we pay people properly. the The general consensus is you must be here at nine a.m. and you must finish at five and do your work. We probably won't monitor how productive you are because we're not even sure how to do that. But just <laughs> as long as I can see you at least pretending to work, yeah, that's yeah. the idea. And you better be back here after the lunch break. Bang on the dot. It's nonsense. What's the point in that? You know, I don't... We have, like most technology firms, there are morning stand-ups. The rule is make sure you stand up just that we can all, you know, remove blocks and make sure we're all on the right path. But beyond that, let's be adults. We've got our tickets. We work off something called utilisation, Jason. So the idea for us for our utilisation is that we should all be hitting 80% utilization a day. So that is 6.5 hours or 6.4 really hours of actual productivity. So that is off our estimations, did we do 6.4 to 6.5 hours? It's not like a an, like a written down law that you must do it or you're out, but that we know that 80% utilization is about right. No one can be 100% productive, impossible. Mm-hmm. So we work off that basis. So if you, bet, if you work better at 1 a.m., good for you. Yeah. Right? And as, as we're distributed, if someone's in Uzbekistan, he's five hours ahead of me. Or if someone's on the East Coast, they're five hours behind. So we've got to be asynchronous anyway. So just level be adults. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that level of trust is something that some companies are finding very hard, you know, letting go of their old micromanaging ways. But mm. fingers crossed that they'll be shaken out of their torpor one way or another. Also, if you can't trust your, your staff, you've hired the wrong people. Yeah. We'll just automate them out of the way, though, mate. 
Yeah, no, 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 I'm I'm laughing because that's not meant to be the way. (laughs) So just to clarify that point before people start getting worried, (laughs) I think that people shouldn't be doing the boring work. They shouldn't be doing all the boring stuff, all the data entry, the double data entry, moving things around. Just doing the creative stuff. Humans are great generalists. We're really good at picking up something new. And and we're terrible computers. Yeah, right. We're terrible at doing the same thing over and over again. We fall asleep. We're just crap at it. Yeah. Uh, so let the computers do that boring stuff, and we could do the fun, creative stuff. I, I say it a lot, but no one phones up a bank and says, "Ah, oh, just put me through to a robot." <laughs> Not yet. But I also understand you're writing a book, or you've written a book, or yeah. Either way, you're going to be releasing a book soon. Yeah. So I'm going to break all of the rules of interviewing, and I'm going to ask you three questions at once. Go on. What's it called? What's it about? And when's it out? It's called Upgrade. Okay. It's about increasing productivity and automation in business. That sounds topical. Yeah. (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) It should be released in the next two weeks, actually. So it's the 7th of October today. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that. I'm going to make a secret out. It's a top secret thing that people record this before we release it. No, 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 not in the slightest. Sure, around the 21st, the 20th. Yeah, sorry to anyone who's listening. I've just ru- ruined, ruined it for you, like telling you that Father Christmas isn't real. <laughs> so who's that book aimed at? Is that like aimed at founders and like the people that you're working with effectively like some kind of encapsulation of all the stuff you've learned and something that they can then use and then call you afterwards if they still have questions? Is that the yeah, kind of- exactly. Yeah, right. So it's based for the small business owner who isn't technically talented, someone who unlikely has heard of terms such as scrum yeah or and then later later then learns to regret it uh, <laughs> well yeah let's not get into scrum that's a whole different episode no i like scrum we obviously have scrum teams but the point of it is it's a bottomless hole isn't it we become obsessed with it yeah yeah it's for the it's for the business it's for the business owner who has started to discover what large consultancies termed digital transformation the most boring term <laughs> yeah, ever yeah i know what you mean Nothing Nothing sounds as exciting as digital transformation, right? Yeah. You know that a company is never going to make it when they start talking about a digital transformation, right? Uh-huh. They're too far gone if they're starting you know, bringing in chief digital officers and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so boring. So it's for, yeah, those business owners really who are on that journey who are starting to say, maybe we should use noise paper. Well, we'll look out for that in a couple of weeks' time and, and hopefully start automating a few things. But talking of automating, I saw before this call that you quote unquote use technology to pass your GCSE exams. And for my international listeners, those are the exams that Brits take when they're around about 16 or so. Mm. So that led me to ask myself, is this like a Captain Kirk reprogramming the Kobayashi Maru test so you can pass the no win <laughs> situation type thing? Or is it a little bit more benign than that? I think being naive and stupid when you're 16, although you seem to think you're very smart <laughs> at that age. I realised that the the teachers had in in our school they they bought us all. I don't, I don't know if they did this countrywide for for secondary schools. I have no idea, but they bought us these. The, well, they bought us. The parents were asked to buy the children a calculator, and they were yeah. basically scientific calculators. and And they were the first one of the first few versions released, I believe. And they had uh, basic on them, so programming called basic. Yep. and me and my friends would sit there in maths class and science class, the proper nerd herd, as we were called. <laughs> and, and, we'd, and we'd build these mini games like Snake, like you'd have on your old Nokia phone, yep. silly things like this. This doesn't sound like it's going to help with the exams, though. No, not at all. Definitely not. 
But I quickly clocked that actually, whilst you weren't allowed to take any notes to a maths exam for obvious reasons, and you meant to memorize yep. your syllabus to pass an exam, whether or not that is the best way of learning, who knows? I doubt it, but there we go. I just figured you might as well just start programming away at your calculator and cheat it that way. But the point, <laughs> the naivety and the stupidity at that point is that in order to program something, you really need to sit there and try and understand it then to try and translate that into any type of program or equation. So you cheated by learning the syllabus. Yeah, smart, right? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, worked. It's one way yeah. of studying. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> And where can people find you after this if they want to talk more about automation, maybe tap your company up or find out a bit more about the book? Yeah, sure. So you can head to our website, lolly.co.com wasn't available. They wanted $60,000. <laughs> I said no. <laughs> or you can reach out to me on Twitter. At I'm Daniel Cooper. I will make sure to put that in the show notes and hopefully some people will do just that. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So really appreciate hearing some of your thoughts and a bit of a different spin on the uh, scalability and automation of platforms hopefully we can stay in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time thanks so much i really appreciate it jason as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to one night in check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>